Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the end of the pandemic. As the two of you surely know, COVID-19 is over. We did it. We uh, defeated the pandemic. It's over. Everybody's happy. We shot the virus with a gun. You really celebrated that proclamation. Um, Why is that? You know, I think uh, rumors of COVID's death are greatly exaggerated or whatever the quote goes. Uh, however it goes. Yeah, it's not gone. It's still here, folks. But a million I've been assured that everybody's ready to move on and that uh, we did it. We conquered the pandemic. We did Th- it. Those are, those are two very different things because everybody does seem – a lot of people do seem way too ready to move on. But and, and that is true. But we did not do it. And those two things have nothing to do with each other, which uh, we, we kind of should have known the first time that we went through this. But it was pretty clear a few weeks ago. Really, it was pretty clear towards the end of last year that uh, basically the government was exhausted by the idea that they had to do anything other than like fund the police and the military. And so they decided that whatever was left of any of the programs, you know, even the barest minimum that they were doing to handle the pandemic would stop. And since the government's not handling the pandemic anymore, then there cannot be a pandemic because if there were one and the government were not to handle it, then it wouldn't really be governing. Quadera demonstrandum, there is no pandemic. Yeah. I think we had an episode on this, on a similar subject around January at the time of, um, around that time Congress was choosing not to pass uh, the majority of Biden's agenda or do much of anything about the Omicron wave that was uh, well underway at that point. Um, Omicron has largely subsided now, but uh, today's episode comes in the wake of the news that uh, the Biden administration will not have the funds to secure that, um, you know, continuing vaccination programs and, uh, you know, covering, you know, treatment for people who contract COVID-19, even if they're uninsured, as has been the case throughout most of the pandemic. You know, we just aren't going to have those funds available to us uh, because Congress decided that uh, we don't need to. Um, I, I think that the official numbers were that the Biden administration was calling for something like $65 billion in pandemic preparedness, and uh, Congress countered with an offer of $2 billion, which is slightly smaller, Insulting. slightly smaller. The things that we talked about on that previous episode have only become more true and more apparent in the time since. Uh, we wish that this were not the case, but unfortunately, we were correct again. Yeah, one day, one day we won't be right. And then they'll take us off the air. Yeah. <laughs> Until then. Yeah.
Yeah, I, and then the only difference on the most recent cuts in the past couple weeks is that in the height of the Omicron wave, states were actively ending mask mandates and uh, cutting reporting for tests, let alone testing um, on positive numbers. So this is just like an expiration of things instead of an active end to stuff. Again, it, it's kind of trying to magic word your way out of this. It's basically saying there can no longer be a COVID-19 pandemic because if there is one and we're not handling it, then we're not doing much of anything. Ergo, there can't be one. Like it, it's mm-hmm. it's this really weird. And obviously, we're project. doing something. Yeah. So a phrase that I've gotten really tired of using over the past two years is, and there it is, because it's usable every time that something that literally anybody with two working brain cells could have predicted would happen unless due to various personal reasons you were okay with it happening so for example eric adams deciding that if you're famous you no longer have to get vaccinated in new york city that's no longer a problem if you're high profile enough it's fine if you are basically turning yourself into a chemical weapon And much the same way, when mask mandates started to end and so on, one of the ways that that was sold was, well, they're doing that because they know that people are very resistant to that idea right now. And when the next wave comes, they'll, you know, need to ramp up again. So if they can get people to take off the masks for a few weeks and not distance, then when the next surge hits, We'll be able to do that. But the thing is, the surge is beginning to hit and we're not doing anything about it because that was never the way this was going to work because at no point during the pandemic, and I, if you're listening to this and you're one of the people who was fine with masks going away and distancing going away and so on, I hope that you at least recognize that this is factually true. At no point did the people who wanted fewer restrictions not get what they wanted. Each time we took away restrictions, they never came back. They have not come back ever. We have never gone back into any kind of lockdown. So it is ridiculous to claim on its face, and anyone with a brain should have known, that this was just temporary. This was always permanent. This was always meant to finally give triumph to all the people who didn't care. And that is exactly what it did. And they convinced a bunch of people who I think did care and went along with policies meant to stop the spread of the virus because they were told that's what they needed to do to basically make the decision that, well, nobody else is doing it. I guess I'm going to give up on that too, because we have this thing where, you know, we don't want to assign individual responsibility, but we do want individual credit for doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, And as we discussed at that time, the Biden administration had largely taken an approach of telling, encouraging vaccination and not doing much in terms of virus mitigation. And, I think it's striking that with that being their policy, the United States lags behind a number of other countries in terms of how many people who are fo- who are who have gotten two doses of the vaccine or the equivalent of two doses and chosen not yet to be boosted. Uh, I, I think it's like 30%. About 30% of the country is boosted in terms of the vaccination and ostensibly people who had no problem getting the first couple doses who you know went along with it and you know know the science and chose to do it you know nevertheless 
aren't going along with the rest of the science. It's sort of a strange problem to have. You know, you can say that uh, people who aren't getting vaccinated, you know, who are anti-vaxxers, who are adamant about this, you know, that's at least an understandable position. But the decision by many to get vaccinated but not boosted, I, I think, reflects a failure of, you know, a vaccine encouragement strategy because there hasn't been a lot of talk about getting boosted. There hasn't been really a lot said about like actually how much more effective that is at preventing you from getting sick from COVID. Um, especially like during more recent variants, like the difference between being boosted and just having the first couple doses is kind of stark. If you look at the statistics that you have to kind of search out for. Not that it matters, because in my experience, trying to talk to people about that sort of thing leads a lot of, and when they come out with a fourth shot, are you going to get that too? And where do you draw the line? And when are you going to get the fifth and the sixth and the seventh? And it's like, mm-hmm. that that's how... That's that, how vaccines work, folks. I, yeah. That's how I had to get. I had to get a three-part shot just to move to the United States. Uh. Like, this is not a big deal. Yeah. And none of them, in none of the ones I had to take, like at least these go in through my arm. I had to take one to the stomach to move here. Yeah. So like, people, I'm sorry. Like, I really need to get this off my chest. People are babies about this <laughs> stuff. Okay. Actually, yeah. that's offensive to a lot of babies because a lot of babies put up really well with vaccinations and that sort of procedure. Um, so I don't really know what the proper insult is here, but yeah. people and really need to learn to put up with like minimal asks right minimal inconveniences for the for your neighbors and family and co-workers is not much but apparently in this country it is and i think to play the other side for a second it's kind of hard to fight vaccine misinformation or any other like attitudes about it being a hoax and a scam when consistently the message has been from uh has been Pfizer or Moderna are posting record profits and that clearly there is a lot of money being made from the pandemic and from vaccines and from the treatment for it so it's really difficult to fight that kind of information that kind of thinking when you think it's just a scam to get money out of people when on some level it is a scam to get money out of people because our healthcare system is fundamentally broken into tiny bits that people use to exploit to get money that people can't afford to spend, frankly. So it's, and, and considering the, the fact that the CDC repeatedly said things that were either incorrect or way behind the times, like when we knew that COVID was transmitted via air, that it was airborne, they refused to say that until weeks later. Uh, They changed the distancing requirements simply for business purposes, and they uh, changed quarantine requirements for business purposes. Like you can't at any level say that any any messaging from the government has been either consistent or realistic or transparent in how it's been set shared with people. And while that's understandable, I think the problem I have with this 
is that a lot of the people is that that gives cover to a lot of people that do have the I can't say the word I actually wanted to say the BS detectors to know which messages are conflicting and which are influenced by politics and so on. They have that faculty, but they don't want to use it. It's not I'm not saying I'm not saying that they don't have the capacity to tell. I'm saying they do because they clearly can sniff out when somebody is trying to scam them, but they use it in favor of doing whatever they want. That's true. And that, that I think is true. a way larger number of people than we're willing to admit, because then it means we have to have some difficult conversations with people. And that has really been a hallmark of a lot of the pandemic, like from all the way back during what passed for a lockdown in the United States to, you know, post mitigation life. A lot of the pandemic has been marked by people being unwilling to actually talk to each other about these things and accept, <clears throat> pardon me, sorry, talk to each other. Uh, there is a marked willingness by certain people to talk at you. And usually these are people who have um, not scientifically, uh, I don't know, fortified views on, on the state of things. But sure. Regardless, I don't disagree that the government certainly did its part to obfuscate and 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 make difficult that whole thing, especially when it was about getting people back to work, getting parents back to work, putting children back in schools and all that sort of thing. I mean, we don't even have to we don't even have to disagree about it. Like Fauci openly said multiple times, you know, I was behind on masks because I didn't want there to be a run on them. I. Uh, put out the guidance that we put out in December because we want to make sure that not too many people are sick uh, or out of work at any given time because that's you know clearly what should matter in a public health decision whether people go into work or not. Um, so it's not even like it, it's just there. He said it openly. We we don't even have to argue about it. Mm-hmm. I th- I think there are a couple. Of, um, I don't want to say missteps because that gives them too much credit and you know, cover in a way. There are some things that have helped contribute to skepticism and opposition to vaccination that, you know, were preventable. The comparison that comes to mind for me is to sort of a global warming. Um, Al Gore was sort of famous for being the evangelist of sorts for the idea that, hey, we're contributing to this big problem that uh, is, um, you know, going to cause real severe harms down the line and is now causing real severe harms. But nevertheless, there are people who will automatically tune him out because they rightly point out, hey, this guy flies on planes. This guy doesn't actually do the things that you would have to do if you believe the science, if you believe that you know climate change is happening, that it is man-made. This guy's breaking all the rules that he wants you to follow. It's it's easy for people to see that sort of uh, hypocrisy and say, well, if he doesn't want to follow the rules, why should I? It's understandable in some ways. And you've seen that to some extent with COVID. We've seen uh, Democratic politicians out at dinners with masks off, um, you know, even in the early stages of the pandemic. We've seen people like Eric Adams, you know, carve out one set of rules for New York Yankees players and another for public workers. You know, these things, you know, people see them. 
they have effects on how people are willing to treat, you know, the rules that are set up. They engender mistrust, which is a bad thing to have just out in the atmosphere when you kind of need people to trust your decision-making. I don't see, this is where I think it's kind of weird because I don't even think it's mistrust. Exactly. I do think there is that to be clear, but I think what is actually the case is that I think it was Kelvin Trillin who, who invented this term. He called it parole drift. And it was this idea that as you know, affluence spreads outward. And he really means like very superficial affluence. Like we're talking about like the Fox news level of like 99% of poor people have a refrigerator kind of thing. But as things that used to be upper or upper middle class trappings um, widen out and become more available to everybody, because our country is kind of stuck in the 1950s as an idea of what like morality and ethics are, people, as that widens out, people want that freedom from any kind of collective responsibility uh, to extend outwards that the rich and the famous already have. And you can't really blame them for that. Because they see the rich and famous getting away with it. They see Pete Buttigieg, you know, doing fundraisers in wine caves or whatever. And they see, uh, you know, the New York Yankees and New York Mets being allowed to play, even though they're violating a mandate, whereas they are not allowed to do so. Like, it makes perfect sense because if you're a regular citizen, like, doesn't the economy work off of you? Aren't you the backbone? Aren't you the person? If anybody should get to not obey the rules, it's you. Nobody gives a damn whether, like, if Aaron Judge doesn't play this year because he didn't get vaccinated, that's not going to change anything. But you, as a subway train operator, actually might make people's lives difficult. Like, there's a difference there. Sorry, I forgot. You might make Yankees fans' lives difficult if you're Aaron Judge and you don't play, but... No, it wouldn't. They still wouldn't make the playoffs. Uh... Uh... All right. I, I think the joke there was you wouldn't make people's lives different. There it is. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> but I think I think that's the thing. I think it's it's people see that the rich and the famous and the powerful don't have to follow these rules. And they're really not the ones that the country depends on to show up to work every day. So it is very difficult to uh to get that across, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the other point I wanted to make, uh, this touches on what you said about uh, Pfizer and these pharmaceutical companies. I don't think it does anybody any good to pretend that they're doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. You know, they are still sure. the companies that are known for price gouging and, you know, doing all these things to limit access to uh, life-saving treatments. You know, the issue with pharmaceutical companies is not that they're a big scam ripping us off to poison us or whatever. It's that you know, they're preventing people from using the very good products that they have. Um, and this has happened with the COVID vaccine. We've seen the uh, issues getting the vaccine to countries in South America and Africa who are having to fork over the big money that wasn't really asked from countries like the U.S. and Western Europe. You know, there's a very this is where these companies are making their money. It is off the backs of countries that because of this will largely remain unvaccinated for years to come because nobody's willing to break the patents that they have over these vaccines. Nobody is willing to um, 
do what it would take to provide vaccinations to um, the developing world. And I think a lot of this can all be summed up and in everything that we've said is that the pandemic may be over in terms of what actions we're going to take, but at every single opportunity that people, individuals, politicians, pharmaceutical companies, whomever, by and large, every single decision that could be made where people have the choice to do the right thing for everyone around them or to not, either out of laziness or greed, they did the wrong thing every single time. Once again, choosing to do the wrong things is sort of um, a recurring theme on our show. Um, when we come back from this break, we'll talk about more people who have also chosen to do the wrong things. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On our first segment, we talked about the um, the fact that everybody in power has declared the pandemic to be over. Um, effectively, all restrictions have been removed. Um, here in New York City, there is no longer the sort of vaccine mandate to enter public buildings. There's, um, as was mentioned, uh, baseball players are now free to play without uh, vaccination. A lot of businesses in New York State have dropped their mass mandates now that they are no longer required by the state to do so. So we're going to talk a bit in this segment about the other half of this, which is, um, you know, companies finally uh, pushing to get workers back into the office. This has been a running subplot in over the course of the pandemic. Sorry, you're giving me a weird look. Why do you mean finally? Sometimes I say words and I don't mean them. <laughs> um, well, I think I think what I'm trying to get at is that, Ryan, you currently your job you work from the office yes, yes? you yes, don't work uh, remotely lou you have been doing your job in person yep. for the same like, time now yeah and yeah, i think like june 2020 yeah and my boss could not have been happier to inform us that he wanted to turn us on to chemical weapons aimed squarely at our families and pets that same month but because I'm a teacher. He had to wait until August before that could be a thing. Hold on. Um, breaking news. Noah's a yep, teacher. Yep. <laughs> Air horns. I guess I should say, you know, a lot of the discourse and a lot of discussion is sort of from the lens of people who have been working at home this whole time because those are people like journalists and reporters and uh, people who, you know, can work from home. But Obviously, there are a great many people, more people, in fact, who have not had that luxury either for all of the pandemic or for large chunks of it, like uh, the two of you. But uh, nevertheless, Democratic politicians and uh, city leaders everywhere have decided that the remaining holdouts, the remaining people who have been able to stay at home this whole time, you're going to have to get back into the office. Uh, you know, on that past episode, we talked a bit about Eric Adams. Um, 
uh, ham-fistedly talking about this and the I, I think bringing up Dunkin' Donuts employees in the process. It was, um, it's hard to remember how he said it now because I think the way he said it was hard to comprehend at the time. <laughs> Eric Adams? Yeah. Not, uh, not making sense? Come on. That's never happened before. We have a few articles here that we've um, read in preparation for this episode on, um, you know, this push to get workers back into the office. Um, I'm looking at a CNN headline Yes, uh, with the headline, why some companies want everyone back in the office. Th- this article, or if not this one specifically, but some of these articles note uh, that productivity has been up with workers at home. And yet, Companies still want them back at the office. Weird. Uh, this specifically, the the one you're talking about. By the way, I want to note this was my favorite article because it made absolutely no pretense of asking anyone other than a boss. Not a <laughs> single worker is asked about this policy throughout the entire article. And you talked about productivity going up. I think I don't have his name in front of me. I think it was Sean Biscaglia, I think it was, the head of Curian, C-U-R-I-O-N. And he does say productivity is through the roof, but it's over the top. It's too much productivity where people are sending emails at 10 at night or 1 in the morning, he said. You start worrying about burnout. Yeah, Sean, uh, or whatever your name is. I'm sure that putting them back in the office when they don't want to be is absolutely going to combat burnout. That's going to be the best possible thing you could do for your employees. Just a wild quote that uh, productivity is through the roof, but it's over the top and it's coming from a business owner or CEO or what yeah, have you. The the only time in history you have ever heard a CEO say, whoa, 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 whoa. we need to cut down on this productivity. There the, needs to be like productivity. CEOs famous for not wanting their employees to answer emails at odd hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a lot here that, because um, it's also, Biscaglia also says in this, that working parents may not be eager to return to the office. And he says, we appreciate all that. And then there are three very pregnant, no pun intended, dots in the way. <laughs> but that's the change management that we are going to have to deal with. Getting the working parents back into the office, that is going to be the biggest change. Sure it is, because it's a change you don't need to make. Just all of the people interviewed in this in this thing are the worst people imaginable. And while this article dovetails nicely with our current moment, I feel it's worth noting that this article is from last May. So in the time <laughs> since this article about companies pressuring workers to get back to the office has come out, we've had uh, two major waves of the pandemic and death hit this country and seeing our death toll climb from probably 500, 600,000 at that time to now more than a million Americans dead, Um, which is a statistic that has not been bandied about as much as, you know, the early hundred thousand totals that um, we heard so much about at the, at the start of the pandemic. Um, Much was made about hitting that threshold of 100,000 New York times dedicated a whole front page to it. Um, A million has gone by with, significantly less fanfare it is it is literally that thing about you kill a thousand people you're a murderer you kill a million you're a conqueror whatever it is yeah um 
to to paraphrase uh, Comrade and punching out uh, erstwhile guest host Gene Allen, this is the one time I don't love it when, or rather, this is the one time I would love it if things were bandied about more. Because um, it, it really, I, I think part of the problem to go back to kind of my weird individualistic bent on this, people really have trouble understanding these large numbers. Like they don't, what is it? They say that you can only ever like quote unquote, know, like having your social network, 150 people. Right. Okay. Um, if I'll buy it. so that you and someone else, assuming you have completely different networks outside of each other, know 300 people. One of those people is dead from COVID at this point, statistically, like it, it's, it, it's a it's a real <laughs> and and that's before you control for things like race, social class, uh, industry, income, insurance, access to healthcare, all that sort of thing. Like some people, no tons of people who have died from COVID. Carl Anthony Towns, basketball player, knows almost a dozen people who have died from COVID, nearly including himself. So once you kind of like realize that this has been a thing and that some people have had a really personal experience with this and that other people have basically gotten to coast through untouched. Yeah. Like now it's, it's on Vogue for some reason to talk about how you haven't gotten COVID because even though people talk about how it's not a moral judgment on you, if you did get it, um, they still treat it like it is. They, they still find ways to blame you for getting it, even while they're telling you that they don't. I mean, I think that's that's sort of part of the problem that you have. That from the get go, this was all treated as a as an individualistic issue, as if if you got it, it was your problem. Even when there were mask mandates, even when there was mitigation, quote unquote. Yeah, and I think two two points. I think the reason why we haven't talked about the million dollar million dollar million person death toll at this point is because at this point you can't realistically say that it's all the orange guy's fault. Like, this is on all of us and on all the politicians, I should say, uh, and, and anybody else in power. Like, you guys had a chance to do something about it and you all gave up. Just hardcore across the board, just gave up. And then second, like, Noah, you're exactly right. Like, there's a huge segment of the population who have been able to coast through either because they were entirely work from home. And all the people in their social network were work from home and therefore didn't have basically any contact with that. So their attitude then is, well, I've done my part. And anybody else who hasn't had the same opportunities that I have to stay at home or only interact with other people who stay at home and therefore we've been able to avoid the virus altogether. Everyone else is, is uh, brought it on themselves. Because and, they were either irresponsible or just too poor, to be honest. They're not going to say it like that, but that's what they mean. And to segue back to the point that I tangented us away from in this segment, the problem with all of those politicians abdicating their responsibility, and I think one of the reasons why I think I'm taking a, a much less um, systematic take on this is that them doing that allowed every boss in the country to abdicate their responsibility to their employees, which again is why people like my boss, who, you know, it did his level best to get as many of his employees sick as possible, was giddy when he informed us that we would be going back in person. You know, he was so happy 
to let us know that because he didn't have to care. Uh, he would be in his solo office all day and have meetings over Zoom and whatever, but we would be exposed. And that is exactly the kind of giddiness you're seeing from these guys in this CNN article. And they are, for the most part, guys. Like, you've got a dude here talking about a law firm going back into the office. And he says, well, we thrive on being together. We are a friendly collegial group. And we are at our best when everyone is here and available and functioning together as a team. Now, I want to remind you what this man works in. Because the very next sentence he says is, in the practice of law... There is nothing like being able to bounce an idea off a colleague down the hall or being of assistance when somebody else wants to run something by you. Lawyers, famous profession for collegiality. Just a bunch of uh, Jimmy McGill's out there just trying to strike up conversation at the office. Um, Perhaps unsurprisingly, these pushes um, have not been well met with open arms from uh, workers. Uh, the people who actually what? have to go through with them. There's a number of headlines about, mm, you know, the sort of hesitancy we're seeing from the workers who have enjoyed working from home over the last two years now and don't want to give them up, give that up. Uh, just anecdotally, my roommate has successfully lobbied his boss to allow him to work a, another day a week at home instead of at the office because he knows that, you know, 99% of his job can be done at home. It's, you know, it yeah. does not have to be done in person. Um, there's a an article in the uh, Wall Street Journal about uh, Gen Z and others resisting return to the office. It's, you know, framed in that generational way, but I don't think this is necessarily a generational issue. Um, it talks about the Well, I'll quote from the article. John Rowity has done everything he can think of to make his company's Chicago office a place where workers want to be. As president of Revolution, which here I'm punching out, please do not name your company's Revolution. We don't care. And if you do, and if you do, do not name them Revolution spelt R capital E Volution. A lot going on there. Um, This Revolution is a sports marketing firm. He's installed a scoreboard, bleachers, and a tunnel between the elevator and lobby to make his 100 employees feel like athletes emerging from a locker room into an arena. To further entice his staff to come back, after many got comfortable doing their jobs from home during the pandemic, Mr. Rowdy stocked an office bar with free beer and bourbon on- for on-site happy hours. Then there's the full-size race car in the lobby. Um. Number one, how perfect is it that the head of a sports marketing firm is Mr. Rowdy? Let's start with that. <laughs> Number two, <clears throat> um, I don't think he went far enough. That's the problem. <laughs> they should have team uniforms with numbers on the back. They can be like the year they joined or their employee number or something. I There's a distressing the PA lack playing, of... Y'all ready for this? I was going to say, there's in. a distressing lack of jock jams. Mentioned in this article, like the fact that Rock and Roll Part Two is not playing as uh, the employee. Not the Gary Glitter version. Not the Gary no, Glitter of course. version. No, 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 canceled. Um, or I don't know. Uh, when 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 an employee gets fired, presumably you'd play uh, na 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 goodbye things like that. You know, you could do so much with this concept. He is not thinking outside the box enough, and you know how we know that it's because there's a quote from him here. It can be frustrating to really do everything that you could possibly do. I have just proven he did not. 
Try not to be overbearing. And engage with your employees. And then have to deal with situations where people still aren't comfortable coming back, he says. And here's the thing. I, I just joked about all of those things that you could do. And I still think there would be an amazing idea for a sports <laughs> marketing firm. I think that would be incredible. But if you're not going to do that, if you want to really think outside the box, and to be fair, I don't know how this business is structured or anything, but you know what could work? Maybe pay them more if they come to the office. Mm -hmm. Maybe cover things. Like, for example, my workplace has never covered lunch in general for employees, but now we do have a stipend, which is, you know, we still had to work in person and everything, but it was kind of a nice thing of like, hey, we realize that, you know, food is expensive here. Let's help you out a little bit. But then how would he afford the Formula One car in the lobby? Oh, come on. He probably got that as a write-off. Some 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 one of his clients was like, we have this broken down old piece of crap. It doesn't the insides don't work anymore. And he was just like, yeah, sure, just paint it, put it in the lobby. Well, we'll you're not going to drive it on the street, and anyways, but exactly. Anyways, so, yeah, the hallway is the only way place you can drive it. Clearly, it's a great it's idea. Just absurd that he went to all of these lengths, and they are real lengths. Like I'm sure all of this took time and effort. Oh yeah. He took a big swing. He took a lot of big and swings. Things that could not possibly be further removed from like incentivizing workers. <laughs> That's the best part. These are all things that a boss thinks employees want. You're talking about engaging with your employees. I guarantee you, if you actually ask them what would make you come back into the office... None of the things he listed are the things that would make them want to come back. It, it's such an absolute case of boss brain. I mean, the guy would run a real cool summer camp, though. <laughs> oh my god! But maybe maybe that's, that's what we'll do. Post actual revolution, not this spelling. Maybe that's what we do with bosses. We put them in charge of summer camps. <laughs> that that that's the one thing we know they'll do because they they don't have to listen to any of the people who are actually there. They can design team building exercises. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. This is. Oh my god. The no, worst part is now that I've made this realization about bosses or summer camp leaders, I I have so much less respect for my profession. <laughs> oh well. But I think the thing I think the thing about it is, and Lou, you and I were on this episode. We talked about the difference between management and leadership. Yeah. And the thing about that is that what this whole like return to work thing, which again, as we've been saying, is a very limited thing. Because if you're working, dang it, I forgot the name of the restaurant, the San Diego Baja Blast Lobster, whatever it was called. If you're working in a place like that, right? You've been in person this whole time. And your manager has continued to treat you like crap this whole time. But if you've been able to work from home, your manager may have actually had to reevaluate their relationship with their role in, in the workplace. And we've said here before, mostly I've said here before, and I'm right, that a lot of managers, I would even say the vast majority of them, don't actually want to do the job. That's their job description. They want to do the job of like, ordering people around, telling them what to do and having control. But they don't actually want to do the parts that are like show leadership, build a team, create trust in your organizational structure, 
They don't actually want to do that. That's incidental to them. Or they think, if I can't do it my way, then I'm not going to do it at all. And as a result, I think a lot of these managers are just completely unwilling to accept the possibility that like, hey, I might have to change gears here. There might be a different way for my employees to do their jobs that doesn't involve me micromanaging them. And it really lays bare for how many bosses the control is the point, not the productivity, not the the achievements, just the ability to look over your employee's shoulder and surveil them and say like, hey, are you, you know, how are those TPS reports coming? Can I make you come in on Monday and so on? Like it's. I will give the Wall Street Journal credit, which is not a phrase we'll be saying often on this show, um, that they do they do quote from a couple workers in this article. And the quotes in the article are fairly telling. Uh, quote, you're not going to get me on the train for two hours for free bagels, says Jason Alvarez Shore, a 36-year-old software engineer who quit his job in New York in January when his former employer signaled an office return was imminent. Later in the article, they uh, talk about... Uh, Quote, Pat Donaldson, a 36-year-old biophysicist, retired early last year rather than he to call back to her office in Rochester, New York. Hey, that's where you guys live. Uh, while working from home during the pandemic, she'd gotten a puppy and thrown herself into gardening, cross-country skiing, and English folk dancing with her husband. Quote, once you go full, remote full-time, you fill up all the hours, she says. And I think that speaks to a lot of people's remote experience that they found better ways to fill the time than they would otherwise be spending on commuting or decompressing after a day in the office. Uh, you know, there are real reasons why people do not want to go back to the office and they have very little to do with the lack of race cars. Um, there's an article in Bloomberg last uh, June, again, before the Delta wave, before the Omicron wave, uh, that quotes some workers about you know, why they're resisting the pushback to the office. Uh, and this one who I simply have to cite because, well, you'll figure out why. Uh, quote, Jimi Hendrix, a 30-year-old software developer in the Netherlands, quit his job in December as the web application company he worked for was gearing up to bring employees back into the office in February. Again, that's February 2021. Uh, quote, during COVID, I started to see how much I enjoyed working from home. Now he does freelance work and helps his girlfriend grow her art business. He used to spend two hours each day commuting. Now the couple is considering selling their car and instead relying on bikes. One of the main benefits, he says, is more control over his own time. I can just do whatever I want around the house, like a quick chore didn't have to wait until 8 p.m. anymore, or I can go for a quick walk. I was, I was going to make a point here about how this was not my experience of working from home. Um, my experience of teaching from home was that I was glued to my computer. Some days I was able to close my computer up and be done at three. Other days, usually at the end of the week when things were due, I would be up uh, all day at the computer playing tech support, uh, sometimes for people who genuinely needed it, and sometimes for kids whose parents were sometimes working from home, sometimes working in person. And who, you know, use that as an opportunity to pretend they didn't know how the technology we'd been using all year in the classroom worked outside of it, despite having access to all of the same devices and everything. And and I was going to say, you know, it was not easy. And it wasn't. I think any teacher would tell you the same thing. But having said that, what I also remember is being able to, 
you know, make breakfast fresh when I wanted to. Um, learning sort of what kind of uh, learning how to make different kinds of coffee, you know, enjoying hot lunches that didn't come out of a container, uh, things like that, you know, like there, there were a lot of benefits to it and they're not benefits that would have stayed if I had taught from home for longer than I did. Um, but they were there, even if I didn't get to watch, you know, like a documentary every day, like some people did or whatever. Um, for me, the the remote thing was always about avoiding infection, mm-hmm. which I didn't get to, and it really, it was it was always a defensive measure. But reading these descriptions of it from people who did get to add meaning to their lives through this, and I think we're gonna get more into this in the third segment, like really tells you, <laughs> like again, how silly the office experience in particular is and really once you see that for some jobs you kind of start seeing it for all of them and and it it is again i want to return to that quote about productivities through the roof or over the top or whatever the heck it is because it is wild after decades of a cult of productivity that did not include raising wages or increasing benefits or anything like that that the thing that finally gets bosses to say like, whoa, 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 let's let's chill on the productivity. It's calmed down on the productivity front is the idea that employees might use the time that you think you're paying them for in any way, but sitting there and I theoretically working for you. I think a lot of this also gets to the fact that, you know, even in offices, there's a lot of uh, downtime. You know, mm-hmm. I went from working in a kitchen to working in an office where I'm working significantly smaller portion of my day now because it just isn't required at these sorts of jobs. But it's a totally different thing when you have that sort of downtime at home where, you know, you might have your pets or your loved ones by your side in some form. It's not the same, you know, just being able to goof off at work because there are things you'd rather be doing even then. And obviously the work from home experience and, you know, the office experience is not uniform. It's not the same for everybody. But, you know, I I think there's a reason that these sorts of stories are so commonplace. Uh, There are so many articles we could have picked from for this show. There is something to the idea that actually this is better for us as workers to be doing this remotely instead of, you know, as mentioned over and over again in these articles, commuting for two hours a day. Naturally, again, there is the fact that the pandemic is not in fact over. It's still out there. And being in a close indoor setting with other people is a known way for spreading it. So there's that. Um, When we come back from this break, we'll wrap up this show with a discussion of, you know, how we might better use those uh, hours of downtime that every job seems to have at, you know, in the office if we didn't have to be in the office. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. 
masks. And Lou. Uh, on the first two segments of today's show, we've been talking about the the willingness of so many people to declare the pandemic over, dating back, as we noted, to last summer, uh, when so many of the articles we read from were written. Nevertheless, we're seeing another fresh wave of these declarations and these uh, celebrations of sorts that, you know, we don't really have to care anymore. We're going to remove all the mandates we had been implementing. The CDC is going to change the definition of a few things. And we're going to get back to normal. By the time by the time this goes to air, it might not be the only fresh wave we're seeing. Yeah. There is a reason that uh, those past declarations did not end up proving true. There is a reason that uh, past... Uh, Easing up of restrictions did not actually uh, signal the end of anything, but in fact, the start of new things. And so I guess where we're going with this third segment, which we tr- typically try to reserve for you know positive things, you know, things that we can take from the show that might not be bad, is if we're looking at ways that uh, all this can be made better, I-, I think there is something to the idea of not just working from home and working remotely because there are certain jobs that that won't ever be possible, but working less. We've read in those articles about the people who found new hobbies during the pandemic because working from home freed up, you know, new time that they would otherwise have spent commuting. That could be us. That could be the rest of us. If only we were, you know, spending less time at our jobs. If we weren't playing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think one thing that the the work from home, not work from home has made more clear to more people is that there is a class divide in the, this country that already existed, but it's very much so the, the service workers and people that need to be in a specific location in order to perform their jobs versus white collar, upper middle class, upper class uh, people who don't have to, whose jobs are, I'm not going to say soft, but uh, just don't, aren't, aren't quite as intense either physically or emotionally for, for a variety of reasons, because they, they can be worked from the privacy of your own home. And the positive things that white collar workers got to experience of having the hobbies and having um, time with their loved ones, that should be something that everyone should have access to. And if that means reducing the work week to make that happen, I'm all for it. Let's go for it. I work too much as it is. Uh, and I could, I, I need more time at home in order to get things done around the house uh, without feeling like I'm losing my mind. Uh, so these are all things that, that can happen and are really pretty reasonable. Like there are countries right now that are exploring four-day week work, work weeks. This is totally doable. And I don't think it's an unfair thing to ask for. If, if any of the Machete y Mate boys are listening, they're going to get real excited. Um, there's a slogan, uh, which is Buen Vivir, Living Well, right? And this idea that you might not have as much stuff but you'll work less and you'll enjoy life more. Like we're, we're sort of getting, we're sort of getting it from both ends, you know, like real wages had a couple months of growth and now gas prices and uh, the world going to hell is, is trying to make that no longer a thing, but had 
things continued on the path that they were going, there was a very real possibility of people kind of discovering that, hey, when you have like a little bit more money and you work a little bit less than you used to, like things are nicer. I mean, we, the thing about it, though, is to go back to the discussion we were having in the first segment. This is all stuff we already knew. Like, that's the sad part. We know that a four-day work week is often more productive. We know that paying people better makes them more productive. We know that if you give people things, it generally helps them be safer and more secure and therefore not engage in, you know, bad and high risk and addictive and all that sort of behavior. Like if you want to do that social engineering, we know how to do it. It's been in the science. It We have done these studies for decades at this point. It's just a refusal to disengage from the whole like Protestant work ethic thing of forcing everybody to suffer as much as possible and work as hard as possible. And there really needs to be an alternative vision of that because for every job that, you know, uh, really requires 90 to 120 minutes of active duty a day, there are probably a dozen, if not two, that have to be done at a certain location that have to be done with your hands, with your brain, with your eyes. And, there has to be a solution for those people too. There has to be a way that they get to enjoy more time with their kids. There has to be a way that they get to enjoy more time at home. There has to be a way that they get to do their housework and that they get to travel and explore hobbies and take up, you know, I don't know, making bread or whatever. God knows they're going to need to, you know, if, if things continue to go the way they have. Like, there has to be a way to make this happen for everybody because. A lot of the story of the pandemic, as Lou pointed out, was that you could, if you were a certain class of worker, you got to ride it out in comfort for the most part. And you got to make a lot of personal decisions on whether you expose yourself to the virus. And there were a lot of people who didn't get to do that. And for all the complaints that we're hearing about returning to the office and so on, and I agree, you shouldn't be made to if you don't want to, there's got to be a solution for the people who never had that as a choice. They deserve, they deserve it more than anyone. Like, they were the people who got, as we have talked about on this show, yelled at, spat on, stabbed, shot at, you know, all sorts of objects thrown at them. All sorts of things for having the audacity to be workers who were thrown into the soup with everyone else. Yeah, I, I think it, there's sort of a way that this could all turn south where uh you know resentment is bred against those who have been able to work from home during this time and it becomes sort of another symbol in our ongoing culture wars as to uh you know who's a real person and who's not where you know eventually you get people who are advocating against the idea of working from home simply because other people who are not them have been able to enjoy it. And that's not what we want. We want these things not to be seen as luxuries for just a few, but to be seen as necessities even, to be seen as rights maybe. You know, the idea that you have a right to a certain amount of time that is your own in a given day. You know, I've been working in an office uh, since july or so and you know my commute's only 30 minutes on a train it's not that bad but nevertheless it's another hour each day where i'm 
not here at my apartment being able to do what it is that I want to do. You know, it's an hour that I'm not paid for. Paying people for their commuting time uh, is another way of, it, if nothing else, addressing this imbalance. Um, you know, if we can't have people, everybody working from home, we can give a little more to the people who are coming to the office or, you know, whatever workplace they might work in. We'll just kind of pay people more. Pay people more to use the resources in their own home. Pay people more to commute and actually go into the office and uh, have to wear nice clothes and, and look professional or whatever. Uh, let's do it. Just pay people. Yes, but when you say it like that, then we could just boil every episode down to that. You know, just pay people more. Oh, my God, we've cracked the code. But, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, part of the reason that it keeps coming back to that is that well, they do all resolve. They do all end up being people deserve more money to do the work that they're doing. But the thing is that we have a massive cultural, educational, and social and political edifice that has been put in place to prevent us from thinking that way. And again, for some people, it's easy to see through that. Some people have the faculty to see through that and don't want to use it. And some people don't have the ability to see through that for whatever reason, you know, um, either out of personal advantage that they derive from the system being the way that it is or from, you know, naivete or gullibility. And as with all the stuff that we talked about at the top of the episode, the problem is you've got that second group, people who really should be able to understand that it is a good thing to pay people more, that it helps them live better. It gives them it makes them more productive and it makes them happier employees and being happier employees means they'll do more for you. Like it, these are basic things that we understand about each other on a personal level. If you do something good for me on some, unless I'm a total sociopath on some level, you're going to earn some amount of my loyalty. And that's not just transactional. It's just the recognition that, you know, you want to be with people who are willing to do good things for you. Like we enshrine this, we call it the golden rule, and then we say, and that's cool and all, but let's not actually organize any of society around that. You know, let, let's have this idea of morality and this idea of ethics and then not do any of that, not reify any of that in how we treat each other, in how we treat workers, in how we treat the, the people, really. And that's really like what it comes down to, which is corny and cringe, and but it's sad that we don't realize that it is an ethical obligation. I know that there are people right now, you know, William Barber famously has worked on this for years and, and so on, but it's, it is an ethical obligation. It's a moral obligation. People deserve to be paid more because they make society work. Average people deserve so much more than they're getting because they're the ones who make the trains run and they're the ones who bring you food and they're the ones who not to toot my own horn, but they're the ones who teach your kids and they're the ones who make sure that you can go about your day the way that you want to go about your day. And if they all had better lives, then so would you. I think that's a very well put way to end this episode for this week. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was punching out.
You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.